All right, welcome to Doc Tell Me More, episode five for The Last Dance. Uh, I've already lost track of how many episodes I've done. I probably should have checked that before I started recording, but I don't want to go back and re-record the last 15 seconds. But uh, either way, thank you for listening, uh, whether it's a first-time listener or whether you've been with me all the way here at Doc Tell Me More, where, again, this podcast is where we take an in-depth look at documentaries. And uh, obviously, we are in the middle of The Last Dance documentary uh, over one of my favorite times growing up, uh, sports-wise at least, following the 1990 Bulls. Um, and it's just so funny, even though I've watched The Last Dance a, a few times in over the last couple years, it still brings so much nostalgia and of uh, when the world was right, when the Chicago Bulls were winning NBA championships. But I digress. Once again, thanks for uh, listening to this podcast. Um, big news for Doc Tell Me More. Uh, we're on Twitter now at, at Doc Tell Me More um, as of uh, this recording. So uh, if you want to follow along on Twitter, I'd appreciate that. Um, pretty much just going to post when there's new episodes and, and maybe just other random sports um, takes on there. Nothing controversial unless you think that me saying Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time is controversial, then I apologize for that. But uh, but yeah, feel free to, to follow me on Twitter there. I'd appreciate it. As of right now, since I just started the account, I have zero followers. So maybe you right now, if you're listening to it, could be the first follower. But, but anyways, here, episode five of the Last Dance. I have a feeling this is going to potentially be a little bit of a longer podcast. My last episodes, and really most of my episodes, are about 90 minutes long. It wouldn't surprise me if this is a two-hour one. We'll, we'll see at the end of this. But there's just a lot of information um, to go over from this episode. And a lot of interesting things that I found that I just wanted to share with you guys. So, um, so let's get to it. So in this episode of The Last Dance... Uh, they're chronicling the 1992 Chicago Bulls season in flashbacks as they look to defend their title. And they're also looking at 1998 from um, the All-Star break to almost towards the end of the 1997-98 season, or, or at least up until they get to the playoffs. So that is what we are going to cover in this episode and we're going to start with uh, the 1998 All-Star Game, which is where this episode begins. And um, this episode, when I watched it the first time, really kind of the beginning took me back because it's an interview with Kobe Bryant, and which was taken shortly before his death. So The Last Dance came out in April of 2020, and he passed away along with his daughter and... Um, numerous other people in a helicopter crash in January. So it just been three months since his death. And to see him be interviewed in this documentary was kind of jarring for me a little bit. And I was someone who grew up and I was not a Kobe Bryant fan. And a lot of that's probably because he was considered the next Jordan. And I personally didn't want people to anybody to be the next Jordan. So I, I honestly rooted against him growing up just because of that fact. But once he retired, and even with his death, I I certainly 
um, developed a, a respect and appreciation for his game. And so um, for it to be a little bit kind of jarring to see him on screen a few months after his death, for me, for someone who uh, wasn't a fan of his, I think that shows just kind of the uh, the impact he had on the sports world. But anyways, they're interviewing Kobe because they start this episode with the 1998 All-Star Game. And this was billed as Michael Jordan's last All-Star Game. Um, now, we didn't know it at the time, but he would retire and actually he would play in two more with the Washington Wizards. But it, it was his last one with the Bulls. Something interesting is that he actually had the flu going into this game. He was sick. Uh, he hadn't touched the ball in actually three or four days. And he was actually listed as questionable to play. Um, obviously, he was going to play, being the competitor he was, but he, he was not healthy going into that. The East starters at that time were Jordan, Grant Hill, Sean Kemp, Dikembe Mutombo, and Penny Hardaway. And the West starters were Gary Payton, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, Shaquille O'Neal, and Carl Malone. Now, if you were maybe born in the 2000s and you listen to me read the those rosters of those East-West um, starters, you're probably thinking, oh, that West team dominated probably because you're talking about five Hall of Famers on that West um, lineup. Now, with that said, if you weren't around uh, in 1998, uh, you probably don't realize how good Grant Hill, Sean Kemp, and Penny Hardaway were. Now, Grant Hill um, was considered maybe one of those next, you know, players to take the torch from Michael Jordan. And he had had actually a, a really phenomenal uh, start to his his career after he graduated uh, from Duke. But he had made the All-Star game. This was his actually his fourth year in the league, and he had made four straight All-Star games. And he was averaging over 20 points a game. He was averaging... Six seven rebounds a game, or excuse me, eight nine rebounds a game. Six seven assists, a couple steals. I mean, he he was a, a, a superstar, and he actually is in the Hall of Fame. A lot of people might not know that, um, but really injuries would derail his career. You know, I talked about Sean Kemp uh, before um, in an earlier episode. Uh, he was kind of derailed a little bit by some some poor choices, and then Penny Hardaway. I mean, this was getting towards the, the peak of his powers. He was, at this time, considered one of the top guards in the league. Um, you know, he had made, this was his four straight all-star game as well. Just a phenomenal guard. And just kind of like Grant Hill, um, his injuries really derailed his career. So that was a pretty formidable East lineup at that time. Now, what was interesting for the West starters is Kobe was voted an all-star starter. He wasn't even in, he wasn't even starting for the Lakers that year. He was coming off the bench, but uh, he started one game that year for the Lakers. But that was just kind of key to his popularity that he was voted an, an all-star starter. He was the youngest all-star starter at 19. Uh, the slam dunk contest that year is actually canceled after a lack of interest among NBA stars. Coaches were George Carl of the Supersonics and Larry Bird, Larry Legend of the Pacers. Uh, and at this time, at the beginning of the game, Kobe Bryant really went at MJ early, trying to, I think, assert that dominance of, hey, I'm coming, you know, I'm coming to take your crown. 
and and that um, really um, got Jordan going. Uh, and Jordan had just a, a phenomenal game there. Had scored 28 points, had six rebounds, eight assists, three steals in 32 minutes. Kobe played pretty well too, though. He had 18 points, six rebounds, and assists in two steals in 22 minutes. Um, Kobe was actually benched in the fourth quarter by George Carl because Carl felt Kobe was being too individualistic with his game. Um, he actually waved off a Carl Malone screen for a pick and roll. It truly pissed off Carl Malone. And, and Kobe at this time was a hot shot guy. He was known more for air balls. He was a guy that had, um, had a poor playoff, uh, where, he, um, playoffs where he shot a ton of air balls in, in a Lakers series loss earlier in his career. And so he, he was known more for that. And so even though he was talented, a, a lot of the veterans and coaches didn't really like that kind of what they would consider a selfish mindset. So Carl benched him for the fourth and Kobe Bryant actually remembered that. And, and when Kobe would play George Carl, when Carl coached the Nuggets in 2008, 9, and 12 in the playoffs, Kobe took that quote personally, like MJ would talk about in this documentary, and, and go out there and take it to George Carl and get revenge later on in the playoffs. Um, Jordan was named the MVP um, of this game. And I think it's Bob Costas who says in this documentary, if there's any doubt that MJ could keep playing, he was the all-star MVP his last year. And actually we saw with Washington later on that he, he played pretty well for a guy who is getting older. Um, but a great performance there by Jordan, and, and again, especially since he was sick, which the documentary uh, doesn't um, point out. One thing there's this relate this uh, documentary, or this episode really brings to light is that Jordan and Kobe had a really strong relationship, and not many people knew that from the, the research I did. Uh, Jordan called Kobe his little brother in, in, in an affectionate term. Uh, and Jordan really didn't interact with players during games, like in a respectful way. He certainly would trash talk people. But for some reason, um, Kobe was someone he would interact with. Uh, Kobe would actually, after games when he would play Jordan, he would wait for him to come out of the locker room after games so he could ask him questions. And this was usually late because Jordan is usually the last one out. And so it could be an hour after game time or an hour after the media sessions and people would be waiting for Kobe to come back to the bus. Now, again, at this time, he was a young hotshot. He wasn't Kobe Hall of Famer. And so this would kind of annoy some of his Lakers teammates, but Kobe didn't care because Kobe wanted to learn from Jordan. Um, Jordan actually gave Kobe his number, which he didn't give out to that many people. And Kobe would text and call him at all hours of the night. They would meet for lunches and dinners when Jordan was in town. Um, they would talk about his post-up moves, the triangle offense when, when, when Phil eventually got to the Lakers, footwork. Jordan would actually demonstrate different things for him. And Kobe mentioned on the documentary that he learned a lot of things from Jordan. And he said everything that he did came from MJ. Uh, one thing that, you know, Cody, Kobe would study MJ, how he evolved his game as he aged, mistakes he made, goals in retirement. And he would actually eventually hire Jordan's trainer, Tim Grover, to rebuild his body. One thing Tim Grover said about the differences between Jordan and Kobe is that Jordan would just do the work. 
He said he would be like, "Hey, I paid you to train me. Tell me what to do." Kobe was similar, but like he wanted to know why they did certain, um, you know, exercises, etc. Uh, later on, Kobe would complain about his teammates to Jordan, and he'd ask Jordan about how to get them to want to win. And Jordan told Kobe that, "Look, it would be his legacy that would be criticized if he couldn't." learn how to get his teammates on the same page. And Jordan knew that firsthand when he was drafted with the Bulls, um, that that it wouldn't be a supporting cast to be blamed to be Jordan. So Jordan mentored him in that. Kobe said in 2017 that he actually copied close to 100% of Jordan's technique. And also the way he talked changed. He tried to talk like Jordan. So he was kind of a Jordan clone, essentially. Uh... Jordan did say that when Kobe died, a piece of him died. Uh, that just kind of demonstrates uh, their relationship there. Um, Kobe was actually 5-3 and three versus Jordan when they played. Of course, that's including sometimes with the Wizards. One of the most interesting things that, that I, I found was that, if you remember, Jordan, you know, he'd retire from the Bulls and then he'd come back a couple years later where he was running the Wizards and he'd play for the Wizards. Um, it's apparent, supposedly Kobe told MJ he would sign with the Wizards after 2004 once his Lakers contract came up. And MJ actually felt confident that had he still been running the Wizards at that time that Kobe would have signed with the Wizards. But at that time, Jordan had gotten fired by the Wizards, so... You know, I don't know if that's just uh, revisionist history, but um, that just shows you how much Kobe respected Jordan, that he would have been willing to go play for the Wizards. And that's a, a pretty crazy what if. I would have loved to see that happen, how that would have worked out. Again, those two are very similar players. Uh, you know, you, you look at it, um, Kobe played 20 seasons, Jordan played 15 uh, Jordan had 14 All-Star games. Kobe had 18. Kobe had five rings. Jordan had six. Uh, you compare the stats, though. Jordan's better in almost every way. Jordan averaged 30.1 points a game. Kobe averaged 25. Jordan averaged 6.2 rebounds. Kobe averaged 5.2. Jordan averaged 5.3 assists. Kobe averaged 4.7. MJ averaged 2.3 steals. Kobe was 1.4. MJ 0.8 blocks, Kobe 0.5 blocks. Uh, Jordan averaged a 49% field goal percentage, Kobe 45. And then you look at win shares, Kobe was 173, Jordan was uh, 213, 40 more. So, and the other thing to think about here is is Jordan played, you know, you're looking at what five less seasons, so. Uh, win shares is, is an accumulated stat. So the fact that Kobe had 40 less win shares and played five more seasons shows you how much more dominant MJ was. And a lot of that was really defense. People forget how great of a defensive player Michael Jordan is and was. And so that's kind of where I think where the edge comes in win shares. But also you look at his blocks and steals. I mean, it, um, we're pretty crazy. So similar players. I think the stats really show that MJ was better. But Kobe a great player in his own right, and uh, he tried to be like Jordan, copy him, and it came pretty close to him, uh, about as close as you could. So um, so that was, the, again, the 1998 All-Star game, kind of the passing of the torch. Yes, Jordan won the MVP, but Kobe Bryant 
started in his first All-Star game. And then after that, Kobe would go on and, and kind of take over the NBA in the 2000s. So it's at this point where the, the documentary flashes back to the 1992 Chicago Bulls season. And so again, that the Bulls had just won the 1991 championship, and they were trying to become one of just uh, a handful of teams to go back-to-back. Minnesota did that. The Minneapolis Lakers did that a couple times in the 40s and 50s. Same with Boston Celtics in the 50s and 60s with Bill Russell. Uh, The Lakers did it 87-88, then Detroit did it 89-90. And so the Bulls are trying to do it 91-92. And so uh, that's what they're trying to do. And it's off the top of my head since then. Obviously, the Lakers did it again in the in the 2000s there. Um, I know the Heat did it with LeBron James and, and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade in like 2012 and 13. And, I, and the Warriors have done it well as well since then. But it's still pretty rare when you think about it to go back to back. Uh, the starters are pretty much the same from the year before. You had Jordan. I kind of uh, he averaged thirty points a game, six rebounds, six assists, two steals, put up seventeen win shares for the season. That's a lot. I think you're looking at anything over ten is crazy. Is is really good. Seventeen is 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 amazing. Jordan would win his second straight MVP and his sixth straight scoring title, which is interesting because when when Phil Jackson took over. He pretty much told Jordan he wasn't going to win any more scoring titles. But here in his, uh, he kept winning scoring titles under Phil Jackson. Scottie Pippen has one of his best years. 21 points, almost 8 rebounds a game, 7 assists, 2 steals, 1 block, 12.7 win share. So really great all-around season for him. And Horace Grant, people forget about Horace Grant. I loved Horace Grant. And not just because he wore some awesome goggles that I would wear myself later when I started playing 7th grade basketball. Um, But great player, 14 points a game, 10 rebounds, almost 3 assists, a steal, and almost 2 blocks a game, and 14 win shares, actually more win shares than Scottie Pippen. And so that was the big three there, that first three-peat. You had John Paxson at point guard, 7 points a game. Bill Cartwright, 8 points and 5 rebounds a game. And then you had a handful of important bench players. You had B.J. Armstrong, who started to really come into his own with 10 points and 3 assists a game. He would end up being the starter next year. Stacey King averaged 7 points a game. Then Will Purdue, Cliff Levingston, Scott Williams, and Craig Hodges averaged almost 10 minutes a game. And then Bobby Hansen, who I'm going to get to later on when talking about the 92 Bulls. Um, he was new to the team this year. Uh now, Jordan's season, um, this was his lowest points per game since 86, but um, he had more rebounds and assists than he had in the last few years. Um, his steals and blocks are about the same. Uh, his win shares, as great as 17 was, that, that actually dropped from previous years. Um, so his stats are still crazy compared to other people. But as he's, I mean, he's still, he's like 28, 29 in this season. He's not quite in his 30s yet, but certainly as his teammates are getting better and they're playing more team ball, his stats are dropping a little bit. Looking at this 92 Bulls um, team, extremely dominant regular season. 
Uh, Phil's advice to the team was to focus on winning streaks. If they lose, forget the loss and try to win three, four, five in a row. Um, they started one and two, and then they won 14 in a row. And then they would have, a, shortly after that, another 13-game winning streak. So that put them at 37-5, and five, about the halfway point, with a nine-game lead. So pretty much from the beginning of the season, they just took control of their division. They never lost more than two games in a row in the season. There were stretches when they lost four out of six at one point. All those games were on the road. They went 67-15. and 15. Uh, Great regular season. Again, the, the 96 Bulls would win 72. This team was only five off. The only teams they, they lost twice to were the Bucks and the Cavs. Um, Cavs were the really good team that year. We'll get to that. Of their 15 losses, 10 of them were on the road. They did not have a losing record to any team. Just dominated. Uh, MJ and Pip were all-star starters. Craig Hodges won his, I think, a third straight um, three-point championship. And uh, Phil Jackson, actually the coach of the all-star team that year. Magic Johnson was the MVP. Now, this is when he had to retire before the season because of his HIV diagnosis. But then they... Um, allowed him to be voted into the All-Star game, and he had, he had a great game and was MVP. And that, because he was able to play in that All-Star game, that was a big reason why he'd end up being selected for the, the Olympic, uh, or be allowed to continue to participate in the Olympics in Barcelona after the season. So the 1992 regular season was dominant. Really at no point were the Bulls in danger of not having the best record. To me, though, what is really missing from this last dance episode is that they make it seem like the playoffs were a cakewalk. They pretty much um, say the 92 Bulls went 67-15, and and then they'd face the Trailblazers in the NBA Finals. But what is missing from that is that the playoffs were really challenging for the Bulls, and they had a couple series they could have lost and not made the Finals. And that's really what I want to highlight here. because I think it's a myth. Like, yes, the 92 Bulls were a great team in the regular season. It's a myth that they curb stomped everybody to the, to the championship. They could have very easily lost and not gone back-to-back. Um, and so in their first round series against the Miami Heat, that was an easy series. It was actually the Heat's first playoff appearance ever. Again, they were an expansion team in the late 80s. Bulls swept that. Games 1 and 2 were blowouts. Game three was a five-point game. The Bulls needed to kind of pull out in the fourth, but it was really an easy series, no big deal. MJ averaged 45 points, which is stupid. Ten rebounds, seven assists, three blocks, three steals and a block. Pippen had a great series, 24 points a game, six rebounds, seven assists, two steals, 1.3 blocks, and Grant was 11-8. and eight. So round one wasn't an issue. Now round two, they were going to face the Knicks. And I'm actually going to spend a lot of time on this series because this was one of the most challenging series that the Bulls ended up um, ended up facing during the entire six-title run. And people talk about the Indiana series in 98, which, which that was close to. That was the other Game 7. This was the first Game 7 that Jordan faced during that once they started winning championships. They could have lost this series. And so I really want to spend a lot of time talking about this series. Now, going into this series against the Knicks, everyone was expecting the Bulls to win in four and five. 
the Bulls had actually beat, gone 4-0 against the Knicks during the season. And the New York had had 14 straight regular season losses to them. And this was Pat Riley's first year with the Knicks. Now, the Knicks had actually gone, actually should have gone on and and uh, won the division title that year, but they had kind of a really bad last couple weeks of the season where they went 5-6 and six and they dropped their seed line. They faced the, the remnants of the bad boy Pistons in the first round and beat them three games to two in a best of five. Now, Jordan would later say that the Bulls underestimated the Knicks. And he also said that the Knicks came out and played a completely different style than they had expected. And they played a very physical style like the bad boy Pistons. Jordan said they could just never grab control of the series. Uh, and one of the announcers for the game actually called the Knicks the new bad boys. Now, Bill Lambeer of the Pistons, again, after they got uh, eliminated by the Knicks in the first round, he predicted that the Knicks would beat the Bulls if the league allowed them to because Chicago couldn't handle physicality. He said that the bad boy Pistons couldn't be physical anymore because of their reputation. The refs knew they were quote-unquote dirty, and so they wouldn't let them get physical. However, he said that the Knicks might be able to get away with it because they don't have that reputation yet. He also said if they start becoming physical, you're going to hear people in Chicago whine to the newspapers that it's not fair. He said the Bulls were a good but not great team. And... Jerry Krause did express concern over what the NBA would allow. And so, again, I find it interesting that the expectation was a sweep, but Bill Lambeer, who knew how to beat Michael Jordan and the Bulls, predicted, hey, these Knicks are going to win if they're allowed to be physical. And it was what a what a great prediction and, and that he made and, and how that series went about. So the Knicks had a huge advantage down low. And so their starters were Patrick Ewing, one of the great centers of all time. Charles Oakley, again, a former Bull, who was traded for Bill Cartwright. Xavier McDaniel. Uh, those three had a huge advantage down low against Horace Grant and Bill Cartwright. Then you had Jared Wilkins, Mark Jackson, and John Starks in their forward and guard position. So that was their lineup. And so, again, game one Chicago in Chicago, um, the Bulls started really cold offensively and New York would take the lead early Chicago would cut into it New York would kind of lengthen it back out and eventually the Bulls would go on a 13-0 run to put the Bulls up three and so you're thinking at this time that hey the Bulls are gonna run away with this but the Knicks would actually battle back and Ewing would put the Knicks up two with 33 seconds to go and then they would hold on for a 94-89 win it was the Knicks First win in Chicago in five years. Ewing had a dominant game, 34 points, 16 rebounds, six blocks, five assists. Um, Jordan, 31 points, Pip, 22. But uh, Jordan, in, in his press conference afterwards, it essentially said, hey, if if you guys didn't think this team was for real, now we know. Or if we didn't think this team was for real, now, now we know. We're, we're in for something, um, a, a tough series. Just Just a massive upset there in the first round. Um, and again, people got to remember, like the Knicks ended up being pretty good in the mid to late nineties. They go to the finals in 94, 99, but people weren't expecting that, uh, this year. I mean, the Bulls had actually, if you remember, beaten the Knicks in the playoffs the year before pretty handily. And again, uh, Pat Riley 
wasn't the coach then. But this uh, this 91-92 team, you know, it was a solid team, went 51-31. and But people weren't expecting them to challenge this Bulls team, which again is considered actually one of the better teams of all time. So game two was important. The Bulls couldn't lose their first two at home. Uh, the Bulls would take a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter, but again, as Jordan said, they just couldn't take control of the series. The Knicks cut it to three. Really, the big player of the game was B.J. Armstrong. Um, he was really key late. He would score six of the last seven. Uh, he'd get a steal and assist, and then Chicago would survive that and win by eight. B.J. had 18 total. Ewing had a double-double, 16 points, 16 rebounds. Grant was 14 and 11, double-double. MJ, 27 points. And so, uh, Bulls win that, um, but the Knicks are pretty happy because they salvaged a split there as they're going to go back to Madison Square Garden to get ready for Game 3, which was a a back-and-forth game. Um, The Bulls took a 9-point lead after 1. Up one at half, up eight after three. Just, just a lot of if you if you watch the footage of this series, just a lot of hard fouls, um, and certainly a lot of flagrants are being called, but a lot of hard fouls, a lot of physicality, and second chance points were, were were big. The Knicks did a really great job of getting the offensive rebounds and putting them back up, and and that's what really kept the Bulls from kind of winning some of these games they lost and taking control. Uh. The big boy of the game was when Jordan would kind of went for a dunk, got fouled. He's pretty much almost pulled down, but he still dunked, and he kind of taunted Ewing a little bit. And so the Bulls would win Game Three, take home court advantage back. He had thirty-two and nine. Grant ten and thirteen. Scotty twenty-six. Ewing had twenty-seven and eleven. Oakley thirteen and nine. So at this point, people are thinking, okay, Bulls, you know, lost. Uh, the first game, but they got woken back up. They've won the next two. Now they're going to, you know, come back and, you know, end this series in five. Yeah, and then take game four, then get, and take game five. So game four is another really close game throughout. Bulls had a one-point lead after three. Phil Jackson was actually ejected at the end of the third quarter for, again, arguing against the extra physicalness and the physicality of the game. Um and remember, he was a former Nick, so the Knicks fans actually loved him for being on those championship teams. But it's funny, he gets ejected as they're, as he's walking out and the crowd's kind of giving him the business. He smiles and waves to the crowd, as only the Zen master would do. Um, Xavier McDaniel was huge for the whole series, but especially in this game, he scored seven points in the first four minutes of the fourth um, to give the Knicks the, the league lead, lead, can't talk, for good. He had 24.7 rebounds. John Starks was huge, 16 points, 5 assists. Um, the Bulls were only 17 for 29 in free throws. Jordan had a tweaked ankle, still scored 29 points. Pippen and Grant had 13. What was really funny, though, uh, if you watch the footage of this game, there's this famous heckler who's actually a Washington Bullets fan. Remember, they used to be called the Bullets back then who apparently were watching Wizards games, had a copy of the Jordan Rules, and would just like sit behind the bench and just read from the book, the Jordan Rules. Again, that was, that was a kind of a controversial book. I talked about it last episode, but the Bulls did not like. Well, anyways, this guy somehow got tickets to the game and was reading it <laughs> at the Knicks game to heckle 
Michael Jordan. He was just reading from the book, The Jordan Rules. Found that hilarious. Really good troll job pre-Twitter. Uh, so the series is split. Okay, Bulls missed the opportunity to really take control. So we go to game five. Uh, Bulls are up by four after three. And, and Jordan, they get another close game. Basically, only the know here is Jordan hits a big bucket at the end to, to kind of seal it. Or dagger for the Bulls. And they end up winning by eight. MJ has 37. Pip has 10 and 10. Uh, McDaniel has 26. Wilkins has 19. I think something I thought was interesting, maybe that's me just being a numbers guy, that the scores of four of the first five games in this series were very similar. So the winning team had a winning score of 94, 94, 93, and 96 in four of those five games. And the losing team had 89, 86, 86, 88. So essentially the, the, the winning or the score of four of those games were 94, 89 pretty much. And I don't know. That's just the random stuff I notice. Um, game six was huge, though. So, again, people are thinking about the, the, the Bulls closing it out. And Patrick Ewing, actually, who had been huge in this series, hurt his ankle when he stepped on Bill Cartwright, stepped on his leg. But he was able to lead the Knicks to a win. 27 points, eight rebounds, three blocks. Um, the, the Knicks had an eight-point lead at half. But the Bulls end up scoring the last seven points in the third to take a two-point lead. But then the Knicks scored the first 13 points of the fourth. And they, they kept Chicago scoreless for over six minutes. Ewing scored nine points in the last six minutes of the game. Uh, Starks at 27. McDaniels 24. Jordan only had three points in the fourth quarter. Pippen had a double-double. So the, the series is tied now 3-3. Three to three. And the, the Knicks actually out-rebounded, out-assisted, and out-shot the Bulls in those first six games. So they were clearly actually the dominant team statistically. It was no fluke they were losing those three games. They were controlling the pace of the series. And that's why there are some serious concern. Like in hindsight, we can say, oh, Jordan always won those games. But there are people thinking, even though it's going back to Chicago, that the Knicks were going to win. Um, Jordan actually said that they didn't have the same hunger as last year when they're going for the championship. Mark Jackson, the Knicks, said everybody should wear black suits to Chicago because they're going to go to a funeral. Man, love, love quotes like that. John Starks is actually fined 5K for essentially tacking, tackling Pippen on a hard foul in this game, and Phil Jackson is actually fined 2,500 bucks for his remarks towards the officials. So game seven. Knicks on the verge of what people were saying was one of the greatest playoff upsets in history if they could pull off the Game 7. Um, ahead of the game, and this speaks to Michael Jordan's relationship with his dad, he asked his dad for advice. He asked his dad if he should feed his teammates or, or you know, get them going early or, or essentially take over and have them follow his lead. And his dad said, take the lead. If they don't follow you, they don't follow you, but you have to take the lead. And when you read the, the papers from this game, of the write-up, that's exactly what he did. He took over the game, he drove, and did everything he needed to do. The big moment of this game, and what really annoys me about this, is this video is actually played in the next episode of The Last Dance. 
and they make it seem like it's in the 1993 Bulls Knicks series. So this is actually in the 1992 series. Game seven, big moment. The Bulls are actually up by eight. But Xavier McDaniels is uh, trying to get in Pippen's head, kind of. And, and the Knicks have been doing this all, whole series, trying to get some intimidation, being rough, which I don't have any problem with that, by the way. But he's trying to get in Pippen's head, kind of going face-to-face. And Jordan comes over, and you can watch this on YouTube. He kind of pushes um, Scotty away, gets in McDaniels' face, and they have forehead-to-forehead. And Jordan says... F you, baby. F you. Uh, obviously, uh, he says it the explicit version. Um, and I j- and you just see that. And there's just something you love about that. Not necessarily the language there, but just like that was the moment that you know, Pippen said he got a lift. And a lot of the other Bulls players are like, that was the moment when that wasn't just Michael Jordan standing up to the Knicks. That was like the Bulls team saying, we aren't going to be intimidated by you. And that was kind of the big moment. Even though the Knicks would cut their lead to three in the third quarter, but that was kind of the big moment there. Uh, the Bulls would go on a ginormous run. They go on a 17-5 to run. And then over the last oh, quarter or so, they would go on a 50-24 uh, run and go from being up 60 to 57, and they'd win pretty easily, 110 to 81. It was the first time that entire series they scored over 100 points, which is interesting because during the regular season, there was only seven games all year they didn't get to 100. But uh, it took them seven games in this series to get to 100. Now, Jared Wilkins, who guarded Jordan, complained they couldn't be as physical earlier in this series, and maybe Phil Jackson gets some credit for his remarks before the game. Jordan had made 12 or 13 free throws, and the officiating was definitely tighter if you read some of the articles from back then. Uh, Magic Johnson, who's a commentator, said that the Knicks just didn't play their game. Uh, and so, really, Bill Lambeer proved prophetic. He said the Knicks would win the series if they were allowed to be physical, and for six games they were, and they won three. And in that last game, they weren't allowed to be as physical, and the Bulls lost. I mean, excuse me, the Bulls won, Knicks lost. But uh, big series that could have gone the other way that the last dance really ignores, and that kind of makes me mad, but that's why I do this podcast. Uh, Jordan had 42 points, 6 rebounds, 4 assists in that game 7. Pippen had a triple-double. Um, the big thing was that the Bulls had 30 bench points. 30 bench points. Now, physical teams really challenged this Bulls dynasty. The the bad boy Pistons kept them from winning a title or two earlier than they did. And the Knicks were maybe the toughest test outside of Detroit because physicality. The physical teams really challenged the Bulls. And that's not to say the Bulls weren't tough. The, you know, it, it goes to the whole styles make fights. And that was a tough style for the Bulls. But again, almost the greatest upset in playoff history. For the series, Jordan averaged 31.3, 5.7 rebounds, 4.3 assists, 1.4 steals, and a block. Ewing, though, people forget about how great Ewing was. Now, Patrick Ewing never won a title with the Knicks. I don't think they really surrounded him with great players, although he did make two finals. But Ewing got 22 points, 11 rebounds, two blocks, and two assists in this series. So he did everything he could to do. 
So anyways, the Bulls win that, and they don't go on to the finals yet. They go to the conference finals. Let's not forget that. So they, that was the conference semifinals. They have a tough seven-game series, and then they have to go play in the conference finals against a really good Cavs team. So I, I discussed the Cavs, I think, a couple episode ago, episodes ago. This Cavs team was really good in the 80s and 90s, and this Cavs team that the Bulls played had kind of the same cast of characters. You know, Mark Price, Craig Elo, um, Ron Harper is not there anymore. But this was a really good Cavs team. Um, the funny thing is, again, even after this series against the Knicks, the expectation was that this would be a four or five game series for the Bulls. But it was not. Now, game one, the, the Bulls dominate. They get up by 12 early, and they cruise to a 103-89 win. Bulls fans are chanting afterwards, sweep, 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 that they're going to sweep the Bulls. And game two happens, and the Cavs blow out the Bulls. Okay, so they're up by 26 at the half. They win 107-81. Bulls come back in game three, blow out the Cavs in game three. Game four happens. Cavs dominate the Bulls, 99-85. So again... Not going to be easy. And I think, again, this speaks to that the Cavs are a really good team. People, again, think before LeBron James, the Cavs must have sucked. No, the Cavs had some good teams in the 80s and 90s. Um, Got to think about this. I'm trying to read my notes a little bit better. What I really encourage you in hindsight, people, is to work on your penmanship in school. Because I did not do that. But also, when you type something, make sure you know what you're typing. So, pulling up my notes here. All right. So, it's 2-2 here. Um, going into game five. Um, it was kind of a closer game. But then you get to the fourth quarter. And the Bulls outscored the Cavs by 21 points in the fourth. Bulls win by 112 to 89. So really, the interesting thing is a lot of those five games really weren't that close. A lot of blowouts. And that gets us to game six, which was the only really close game um, of the series. And the Cavs had a seven-point lead at one point. But then with four minutes to go, Cavs are up by four. So we're almost to another game seven. And can you just imagine had the Bulls gone to another game seven? how just exhausted they'd be going into the NBA Finals. And so then again, so they're up by four with four to go, and the Cavs are up by three with three to go. And then uh, the Bulls would take a, a quick lead, and then it, Mark Price would tie it with a three. So 45 seconds to go, the game is tied. Um, again, Cavs have a chance to steal this game, go to game seven. Jordan comes through with an and one to make it 96-93. Cleveland turns the ball over, then hits, then Bulls hit free throws the rest of the way. So the Bulls win a close one, 99-94. But here's here's my point, though, with talking about these last two series. The conference semis against the Knicks and the conference finals against the Cavs were two really close series the Bulls could have lost. I mean, the Bulls were taken during Game 7 against the Knicks. Game 6, the Cavs kind of blew there. That should have been a Game 7, which would have, again, been another challenge for the Bulls. So the last dance really made it seem like the Bulls just dominated on the way to the NBA Finals, but it's not crazy to think that that team could have gotten upset and the Trailblazers would have played somebody else. I think what really hurts the legacy of the 1992 Bulls, just when they stack up all time, 
is uh, is is this playoff run. Had they maybe won those series in four or five games, I think people would put the 92 Bulls as one of the greatest teams of all time. But their playoff uh, struggles heading to the finals kind of hold them back in that regard. But the Bulls did survive and make it to the 1992 NBA Finals, which is the first finals that I actually remember um, the Bulls playing in. I mentioned that I didn't really remember the 91 season. Uh, but it's the 1992 finals of playing the Portland Trailblazers, which really one of the better teams in the NBA at that time. So from 1990 to 1992, they won 59 games, 63 games, and 57 games. They lost in the 1990 finals to Detroit in five. They were the favorites to meet the Bulls in the NBA Finals in 91, and they got upset by the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, and that might have been actually their best their best team, honestly, the 1991 team. Really strong team, though, led by Clyde Drexler, who was the All-Star and nine, nine-time All-Star. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's on the 50 and 75 greatest players of all time list, 135 win shares. Um, really great players. He was the MVP runner-up in 92 to Michael Jordan. 25 points a game, six and a half rebounds, almost seven assists, almost two steals, one block, 12.8 win shares. And from 88 to 92 was just an elite player. During those five years, averaged 25 points, seven rebounds, six assists, two steals, almost a block, and averaged 12 and a half win shares. One of the, he was one of the first elite players to take advantage of the three. He took 4.4 per game in 92. Michael Jordan just took just over one a game. Reggie Miller, who was a great three-point shooter, took 4.2. He's one of six players in NBA history with 20,000 points, 6,000 assists, and six rebounds. Um, really, there's a lot of other stats I could talk to, but... You know, all time, Michael Jordan's considered the greatest shooting guard of all time. And Kobe, number two. Clyde Drexler is considered number five or number six. Greatest shooting guards of all time. All time. And during this era, Michael Jordan was clearly the best shooting guard from the 80s and 90s. But Clyde was number two. Think about that. You have two of the top five shooting guards of all time playing in the same era. But MJ was just better. He would hit, there was a huge gap between MJ to Clyde. But then there's a huge gap from, gap from Clyde to everybody else. But since they were played in the same era, everybody compared Clyde to Jordan. And Jordan was just better. So I think because of that, because Clyde played in Jordan's shadow, he came into the league a year before Jordan. He retired after the 98 season. People forget about how good Clyde was. But Clyde was one of the five greatest shooting guards of all time. So, and this series was really billed as Clyde versus MJ. Again, their stats are pretty similar. Um, Jordan averaged more points a game, had five more win shares, mostly because of he was a better defender. Um, some people actually believe that Clyde Drexler was better. He just didn't get the publicity since he was in Portland. He was a better rebounder, better three-point shooter, but again, Jordan's a better defender. Uh, Jordan was also a better jump shooter, especially when guarded. He was a really good shooter when he was tightly guarded. Uh, and this 
and the documentary kind of points this out, this really motivated Jordan to destroy Clyde Drexler. Also with the fact that Portland passed on MJ in 1984. Famously, they drafted Sam Bowie because they already had Clyde. So again, Jordan's always going to use anything in his power to motivate him. And he used that quote-unquote slight of Portland to go out and destroy Clyde and destroy the Portland Trailblazers. Now, Danny Ainge, who was on this team, I'll get to him in a little bit, he later said that he felt like Jordan played like he had a personal vendetta against Clyde and played with a certain, quote, inhumanity. Um, Phil actually felt this one-on-one focus against Clyde hurt the team a little bit and took the focus off the team. This actually hurt them in game two, which I'll get to that. Um, Later on, Jordan and Drexler would, would be on the dream team in the Olympics. And Jordan, even though he had beaten Clyde in this finals, would just kept trash-talking him. He, he would constantly tell him in practice, didn't I just kick your butt? Think you can stop me this time? Better watch out for the threes. And his dream team teammates actually had to get Jordan to stop trash-talking Drexler. But Jordan was just trying to get that mental edge. Because he thought he would play Clyde again in the finals, which he did. And this was the only way they did it. He also, people noted that they took his def- he took his defensive intensity up a level when guarding Drexler in the Dream Team, uh, Dream Team practices. And so this was Clyde versus Jordan, considered the two best players in the game. And so Jordan really wanted to show people he was better. Uh, but it was not just Clyde Drexler. Had a great team. He had Terry Porter. Uh, who's a point guard, all-star 91-93, 17-year career, averaged 12 points and almost 6 assists that season, 110 win shares. 92 was a pretty good year. He averaged 18 points and 6 assists. Jerome Kersey was a small forward, 17-year career himself, 70 win shares, 10 points, 5.5 rebounds, 2 assists. In 92, he had almost 13 points, 8 rebounds, and 3 assists. Then Buck Williams... Sounds like a 90s NBA name. Buck Williams, three-time All-Star. He was Rookie of the Year early in his career. Four-time All-Defensive player, 17-year career, 120 win shares. In 92, he had 11 points, 9 rebounds. Then Kevin Duckworth, another cool name, I think at least. He was a two-time All-Star, 89-90. 12 points, excuse me, 11 points, 6 rebounds a game this season. Then off the bench, two guys to look at. Clifford Robinson was the, would eventually be the 1993 Sixth Man of the Year, 94 All-Star, two-time All-Defense, 12 points, five rebounds. And as I said, Danny Ainge, really more known for being on some of those Boston championship teams in the 80s, was an 88 All-Star. Came off the bench for the, the, the Trailblazers here. Nine points, two rebounds, and three assists. So, I mean, a really good all-around team. Uh... And some people felt that the Trailblazers had more talent. And so, um, it's going to be an interesting series here. Uh, now, yeah, I'm going to keep going here. Okay. Now, before their regular season game in March, uh, when they played each other, Phil said that the Portland is a team that when it is close, it would self-destruct. Um, and that was really Portland's reputation at this time, that Portland would choke in close games. MJ said Portland had more talent, but the Bulls were a better team, had better players. And Chicago actually killed them in that matchup. They actually won both um, matchups that year when they played each other. 
Um, so Portland going into this this series, uh, they they're trying to shake their playoff demons. They're trying the Bulls are trying to become a dynasty. This was kind of the rare uh, NBA Finals where the two preseason favorites ended up playing each other. So there's only really one game that this the doc tell me more. Uh, doc tell me, I'm doc tell me more. The last dance talks about, and that's game one, the infamous. Jordan shrug game, and this is the game where Jordan ties the NBA record, or tie, breaks the NBA record for threes and a half, hits six in the first half. Actually, also tied the whole game record, and NBA final record of 35 points in the first half. And so the story of game one is the six threes, and I don't want to rehash it a whole lot because the Doc Tell Me or the <laughs> the Last Dance, not Doc Tell Me More. I'm Doc. Tell me more, Mike. Come on, get your get your stuff together here. The Last Dance talks about this game in depth, but I do want to talk about those six threes in terms of how important they were to the game. And so the the first threes that he makes kept the Bulls in the game. And so the the first three happened in the first quarter, and they all happened during deficits. And so the first one happens when the Bulls are down by eight. The next one happens when they're also down by eight, and the third one happens when they're down by five. And so those Jordan threes keep them in the game because Portland started off hot in this game. Then the other three threes happen in the last three minutes, or excuse me, 445 of the second quarter. Um, these happen when they're all up. So Jordan's first threes kept him in the game, team takes the lead, and then his last threes extend the game. Uh, they were up by four on his fourth one. Then he makes one. His fifth happened when they were up by nine. And his sixth one happened when they were up by 14 to turn it into a 17-point lead. And um, he actually ended up missing his seventh one towards the end of the half. And the Bulls are up 66-51 at half. So, again, the Bulls go from being down eight from when he hits his first one to being up by 15 at the half. So they were important threes. They weren't just junk threes that happened at at stat padding time and really the big thing is the Bulls went on a 57 to 23 run they're up by three points after one they're up 104 to 68 after three quarters and then they dominate when 122 to 89 in game one so MJ only had four points in the second half had 39 points 11 assists total Scotty was one rebound away from a triple double Drexel had a decent game uh, 16 points, 5 rebounds, 7 assists. So Bulls go up in game 1. And then if you just kind of take the rest of the documentary and what they show you, you think the Bulls dominate easily. But that is not true. And they don't show games 2 and 6, which I think are some of the more interesting games in this entire dynasty for the Chicago Bulls. So game 2 uh, is an overtime game. Uh, Portland was up 8 early. Chicago would take a seven-point lead into the fourth. And this leads to a crazy last five minutes. I'm just going to kind of take you through some of the play-by-play. So with five minutes to go, Jordan hits a crazy jumper to put the Bulls up eight. And then on their next possession, Clyde Drexler fouls Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen hits two free throws to go up by 10, and Drexler fouls out. He had a great line, 26 points, 6 rebounds, 8 assists. But Drexler's out of the game. Bulls are up by 10. Four and a half to go. 
Now, at this point, Phil Jackson said later his team, he felt the team relaxed with Drexler out. And this is what he talked about earlier when Jordan was so focused on Drexler that that could take away from the team. Portland gets some life when Jordan commits a foul and then gets mad about it and gets teed up for arguing. So Portland makes three free throws to cut into the lead. However, the Bulls do come back and Bill Cartwright is able to extend the lead uh, to nine. Now, what happens over, so three minutes ago, the Bulls are up by nine. What happens from there on out is that the Bulls cannot make shots. You know, Jordan would split some free throws. He'd miss some shots. There'd be some turnovers. Important would catch fire. Terry Porter hit a crazy shot to cut it to five. And then slowly but surely, the, the Trailblazers would come back and tie it. So the, the Trailblazers would come all the way back, and they'd tie it at 95-95. Jordan would come right back and hit a two to put the Bulls up two or 30 seconds left. But the Pistons, or the Pistons, the Trailblazers would come right back and tie it at 97 with 17 seconds to go. Jordan had a chance to win the game and miss the shot at the buzzer off the rim. So Portland goes on a 12-3 run in the last three minutes to send the game to overtime. So the Bulls choke here. They choke here. They could have gone up 2-0. Instead, it goes to overtime. The Bulls do take an early lead uh, when they score the first two points of overtime. Uh, and then the, it's tied at 99. And really the key in the overtime is that the Trailblazers have three possessions and the Bulls have three possessions. Portland scores six points on those three possessions. Chicago gets six free throws. They make only three of them. They split all three of those opportunities. So the Trailblazers are up by three with two to go. Then Terry Porter hits a dagger three to put the Trailblazers up six. Danny Ainge would make a bucket two to put him up eight. Danny Ainge was huge in this game. And the Trailblazers would come back from a 10-point fourth-quarter deficit and win by 11. And it was the Bulls' worst Home defeat in an NBA Finals game, which actually tells you something where it's only 11 points. Terry Porter, 24 points. Jordan, 39 points and 10 assists. So Portland comes into Chicago, does what they have to do, splits. They go to Portland now for three straight, and going into that game, there's a lot of concern for the Bulls. Trailblazers felt really good. I mean, they're at home. It wasn't inconceivable for them to maybe win two out of three and really take control of this series. Bulls, though, would take control early. Um, sorry. Uh, would take control early and go up by eight after one. And then they'd kind of maintain and win, win the game by ten. Uh, Portland wouldn't score in like a, a seven-point stretch. In the third and fourth, MJ had 26, Scotty 18, 8, and 7, almost a triple double. Actually, Horace Grant almost had a triple double too, 18, 8, and 6. Clyde Drexler, great game, 32 and 9. Uh, so, Bulls have a big win to kind of take back home court advantage. They come to game four, and you wouldn't think the Bulls would blow two games in the NBA Finals. But that's exactly what happens. Uh, the the Portland was down by three after three quarters. 
and they dominate the fourth quarter to come back and win by five. Jordan does not score in the last ten and a half minutes. And so Chicago had a chance to probably sweep this Portland team if they don't choke these two games, but instead it's um, it's a split. Trailblazer to say afterwards in their locker room, like, oh, I'm sure the Bulls are going to talk about how they just gave us another game away. Well, they can keep giving these games away. That works for us. Um, game five was really the only uh, game that wasn't close. Uh, Bulls were up by 13 after one, 17 after three. Cruising, easy win. MJ erupts for 46 points despite having a sprained ankle. Clyde Drexler goes 30 points, 10 rebounds. But um, I think what's really impressive about this Bulls team is that they they choked two games away, then came right back in the next two in those next games and, and they won. So Bulls actually uh, take two out of three in Portland, and then they uh, go home for Game Six. And I really honestly uh, cannot believe. Uh, um, that the last dance does not talk about game six. Um, an incredible game that I one really one of the biggest comebacks in NBA Finals history, honestly. Uh, so the Portland Trailblazers are trying to force a game seven. Okay. And they come out in game six and are just on fire. So Portland takes a 15-point lead. They're up 79-64 to going into the fourth quarter. So 15-point lead. Phil Jackson actually comes out, benches his starters, with the exception of Scottie Pippen. So you have Scottie Pippen, B.J. Armstrong, Stacey King, Cliff Levingston, and Bobby Hansen. Bobby Hansen's MJ's backup. Prior to this game, the largest deficit overcome was 12 points by ni- in 1967. So I don't really know if Phil Jackson is like, forget this, this game is over, and I, I'm going to rest Jordan. Or maybe he felt like they just needed to have the reserves out there to see if they could spark something. But Bobby Hansen ended up being huge. So Bobby Hansen, like I said, was MJ's backup. He was the only member of the... Um, 92 Bulls to not have a ring. Now he was traded to the Bulls two games into the into the season. He was in his, his ninth season overall. He played for Utah for seven games, played for Sacramento to one. He actually once made an NBA playoff record 15 consecutive field goal um, field goal attempts over two games in 1986. He had actually asked for a trade to the Midwest. He's from actually Iowa, played for the University of Iowa, as did B.J. Armstrong, who's on this team. They were not there at the same time. So he wanted to trade to the Midwest to be closer to home. He knew his career was coming close to an end. And the Bulls were actually interested. And they wanted a durable practice player to guard Michael Jordan. And that's essentially why they they brought him in. Because he wasn't going to play much in games. They said, hey, you come in. You need a big-time practice player for MJ. Can you do that? And he said, yeah. So he's on this team. So he's out here starting the fourth quarter. With, again, Pippen and three of the reserves. So he starts out the fourth quarter and hits a three. And then he steals the ball um, to get the ball back for the Bulls. And then there's a flagrant foul on Portland that they convert one free throw. 
and then Pippen makes a bucket. So all of a sudden, almost really quickly, the lead goes from 15 to 9. Uh, and then at this, and then there's a couple more possessions that happen where you go back and forth, but it's still at nine. At this point, Bobby Hansen asked MJ if he wants to come back in, and Jordan told him no to keep it going. Uh, MJ has actually been a great cheerleader during a timeout. Phil Jackson told him good job, but then to, to Bobby, but then told Bobby not to f it up. <laughs> I just can't imagine what that's like. Hey, good job, but don't screw this up. So, um. And then Chicago would just slowly chip away. You look at the play-by-play here. Portland kept missing shots, kept turning the ball over as well. So Pippen hit a two to cut it to seven. B.J. Armstrong hit a two to cut it to five. And then Stacey King would hit a two to cut it to three. And this was all within like the first three or four minutes of the quarter. So Chicago was able to cut most of this 15-point lead off and not take up that much time. And so, with the Bulls down three, 81 to 78, Jordan comes back in. Bobby Hanson goes out. And this would actually end up being Bobby Hanson's last game. He'd retire after the season, but having a crucial part in the Bulls' comeback. Uh, Clyde Drexler, though, uh, really did his best to keep the Trailblazers in the game. Um, when Jordan comes back in and, and the Bulls still are struggling, uh, Portland keeps turning the ball over. Um, Jordan's missing some shots. The Bulls are missing some shots. It gets kind of ugly for a little bit. And um, Jordan would hit a crazy two to cut the lead to one with about halfway through the half, so about six minutes to go. Uh, And then later on, Pippen would hit some crazy three as the shot clock expires to tie the game. Um, And then it kind of go back and forth. Jordan hit some big shots, some really good defense. And then a kind of an interesting play-by-play, and all these games are on the YouTube if you want to watch them. Uh, at tied at 87, the Bulls miss a shot. Portland rebounds it. Jordan steals and then dunks it to give Portland the lead, which is their first lead since the opening minutes. Clyde Drexler comes right back, dunks on Jordan, and knocks him down to tie the game. Uh, eventually, though, Pippen would then hit a two to put the the um, Bulls up two. Uh, Jordan hit a fadeaway to put them up four. Drexler hit a couple basket or a couple free throws to cut it into two. Drexler actually had a really good game. It's not his fault that uh, Portland lost. Jordan hit another shot to put him up four. Um, he hit two more free throws to, to keep it at four. And then um, with Chicago up four with 12 seconds left, Portland misses the shot. John Paxson rebounds, and the Bulls win. So the Bulls come back from a 15-point deficit in the fourth quarter to win the championship for a lot of that time with their backups. With their backups. And without Jordan. It was Scottie Pippen. And so you can understand how Scottie Pippen is really unhappy with how he's portrayed in this documentary, and I can understand that because this was one of his big moments. Jordan struggling. But Pippen leads these reserves back to, uh, to help the Bulls win the title. And then MJ comes in and, and kind of cements it. But the fact that this game was not talked about in, in the last dance, I think it's criminal. This, what an incredible game. Yeah, you got to talk about the Jordan shrug. But you got to talk about the, the overtime win for Portland in game two. And you got to talk about this game. 
So this was the third straight series. If you count the game seven against the Knicks, the game six against the Cavs, and this game six, this, I mean, these were three moments where the Bulls almost lost and could have easily not defended their title. It was not a cakewalk that the Bulls won the title. Okay, it was not. Um, if not for kind of two fourth quarter collapses, the Bulls would have played three straight seven game series. And you got to give a lot of credit to Portland. This was a really good. Portland team. And it's kind of too bad that this Portland team didn't win a title. Um, this was a good Portland team. I think the narrative that they were kind of like a sacrificial lance for Jordan is wrong. Four of the six games were close in this series, and there's only really one true blowout. But um, Scott, Scottie Pippen had a great game in Game 7. 26 points, 5 rebounds, 4 assists. Clyde was 24-8. and eight. Jordan had 33 for the series, Scotty almost averaged a triple-double. 21 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists. Jordan had a great series, but so did Clyde Drexler. So Jordan had 36 points a game, 5 rebounds, 6.5 assists, 1.7 steals. Drexler had 25 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists, 1.3 steals. So yeah, Jordan beat Drexler. But Drexler didn't wasn't terrible. Um, but because MJ denied... Uh, him a title. Uh, the narrative is that Jordan owned Drexler, and, and that just that just isn't true. So, lot. I think what's interesting, and Michael Wilbon says this in the Last Dance documentary. He says that he considers the '92 team maybe better than a '96 Bulls team, and there's a lot of people that kind of have that similar thought. So the question is, was this team better than the 96 team, which we will talk about the 96 team in a couple episodes. Both teams are actually considered by a lot of people two of the greatest teams of all time in the top 10. And the NBA during their 50th anniversary season actually named both teams in their top 10. Now the case for the 96 team is they had five more wins than the 92 team, 72 to 67, and they had four fewer playoff losses. Um, so they had a kind of a better record. However, the case for the 92 team is that there was less expansion by 92. By 96, we had Vancouver and Toronto, two really bad teams, and a lot of the rosters were diluted at that point because of expansion. And a lot of expansion happened from 89 to 90, oh, 95, 96, and that kind of watered the league down a little bit by 96. So a lot of people feel like 67 wins in 92 is like 70. It's really like 72 wins. Looking at the starters, uh, MJ and Scotty were the only two players that were on both both of those teams. The stats are actually similar for both years, maybe a little bit better, 92. Um, at center, you had Bill Cartwright versus Luke Longley. Very similar stats. Uh, at point guard, you have John Paxton versus Ron Harper. Ron Harper, a little bit better defender. Similar stats, except he would get he had more rebounds and more steals than Paxton. Sixth man, B.J. Armstrong, which is Tony Kukoc. Tony Kukoc was the sixth man of the year in in, in uh, '96, and his stats are actually pretty, you know, not significantly better, but across the board better than B.J. Really, the question is, do you want Horace Grant or do you want Dennis Rodman? And I said in an episode or two ago, if I had to pick a starting five, I'd want Dennis Rodman on my starting five. 
Not necessarily because he's one of the five greatest players of all time, but I think he's the greatest defensive player of all time. So, would you take Rodman or Grant? I'd probably take Rodman, but you can make the argument that Grant was the better all-around player. So Rodman would average 15 rebounds to Grant's 10 in, in these two seasons. But Grant would get 14 points, and Rodman only would get five. Horace gave you a little bit more offense. Um, the assists were about the same, and honestly, Horace's steals, um, he averaged actually one more block a game than Rodman, and 1.2 steals to 0.6 steals. And so Rodman, um, stats outside the rebounds, Grant has the edge. Although, how do you quantify the impact Rodman had guarding guys like Shaq or whatnot? So the question is, would you prefer Horace or Rodman? I think you can make an argument for Horace Grant. I'd probably still take Rodman. I think, though, if you're looking at edge, I think... If, if you look at the the, the starting spots, um, the 96 team has an edge at the point guard. Um, it has an edge at the six-man role. It's a wash for center. It's a wash for MJ and Scotty. I would probably lean a little bit to the 96 team, but it's closer than some people think. Um, kind of one random thought. The Chicago Blackhawks are actually playing in the Stanley Cup Finals at the same time. Uh, had they won, Chicago would win the first city to win the NBA title and the Stanley Cup at the same time. They did not. They got swept. So the 1992 Bulls became actually the third straight team to repeat after the Lakers did it and, and Bad Boy Pistons did it, but still really rare to do. Um, you know, something that Larry Bird actually didn't do. Magic Johnson had done it. But uh, Bulls go back to back. Wasn't as easy as people said. Before we move on, I just want to kind of remind people of a couple big kind of what ifs looking at Michael Jordan and and Clyde Drexler. So looking back now, a lot of people talk about what if Michael Jordan went to Portland in 1984? They could have drafted him number two, um, even though Clyde was on the team. And they, I mean, and, and that's ultimately why they didn't draft him. Clyde Drexler has given interviews that said he was for the Trailblazers drafting Jordan. He wanted them to draft Jordan. And they could have figured it out. Now, what if they did draft Jordan? I think that's really interesting. Um, The Trailblazers were a playoff team from 1983 to 2003 without Jordan. They may have had those three great years in 90, 91, 92 without Jordan. I think if you put Jordan on the Trailblazers, now not every move is going to be the same going forward, but I think you're looking at a a team that probably gets to the NBA Finals at least once or twice and probably wins one or two. Clyde says they could have coexisted. I think it would have pushed the NBA to be more guard-oriented earlier and away from the centers. It wouldn't have surprised me if Portland three-peated in 90-92. If all things were the same, I think they would have beaten Detroit in 90. And obviously without the Bulls, I think Portland would have won in 91-92. The other thing I wonder is if would Jordan have even gone into his first retirement? Maybe not. Also, Houston, maybe they don't win the NBA titles in 94-95. So who knows? The other what if that people don't talk about is that the Bulls actually could have drafted Drexler in 1983. 
Drexler is drafted 14th. The Bulls picked 13th. And they, they, so they could have had Drexler as well. And maybe Jordan next year. Who knows? But still my favorite what if. And I think I brought this up in the first episode. So I won't spend too much time on it. But in 1984, Houston had the number one pick. Portland had the number two pick. Houston had Ralph Sampson. And they were going to pick Elijah on number one. Portland offered Houston Clyde Drexler and the number two pick for Ralph Sampson. Had Houston accepted it, they would have had the number one and number two picks plus Clyde Drexler and could have drafted Akeem Olajuwon, Michael Jordan, and had Clyde Drexler. That would have been a dominant dynasty. I think that team would have won five, six, seven, eight titles, assuming everybody stayed healthy. So um, just two interesting what-ifs. But Bulls repeat, but if there's anything I want you to take away from this is Clyde Drexler is a great player, one of the greatest players of all time. I just looked up some rankings for this podcast. There's a lot of people that put him in the top 25. Great player, and nothing takes away from him, even though Jordan dominated him. And he would get his title later in the 90s, which we'll talk about in another episode. So there's no rest for Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen, or even Clyde Drexler, as after the 1992 finals, they went to play in the Barcelona Olympics as part of the Dream Team, which was the first Olympics with NBA-sanctioned players on it. So this was a really, really big deal, and I remember it at the time. And so to give you a little bit of history and how much of a big deal it was that there are NBA players playing uh, in the Olympics. Let's give you a little bit of a history lesson here. So the Olympics, obviously, the modern Olympics have been around since 1896. 1936 was when basketball became sanctioned at the Olympics, and the U.S. has dominated, still has dominated since 1936. But from 36 to 68, they won gold at every Olympics and didn't even lose a single game. Now, the 1972 team was upset in the gold medal game controversy for their first loss. You can read about this if you want to, but essentially uh, the Soviet, the U.S. was up by one after some free throws by Doug Collins, actually, former Bulls coach. And the Soviet Union was given like three chances to inbound the ball with three seconds left to get a shot. The first two times, it doesn't work. Third time, they... They get it and score to beat the U.S. by one. That team was so upset. They still have not accepted their silver medals. The, the team came back and won gold in 76 and 84. They boycotted 80, so they didn't win in 80. But then 1988 happened. Okay? And through 19, 1988, FIBA, which is the international governing body of basketball, had banned NBA players from playing, but if you were a pro, a pro player in other leagues, like the Euro Leagues, you could play in the Olympics, which I think is hypocritical. So you'd have some of these other countries would have professional players on their team, but they just weren't in the NBA. And I, that's a huge difference than college players. So the 1988 Olympics, the U.S. team was coached by John Thompson, the Georgetown coach who won an NCAA title in 84. Um over Houston's five slam and jammer team, which actually had Clyde Drexler on it and Hakeem Olajuwon. Although Thompson lost the 82 finals to Jordan, North Carolina, then was upset 85 by Villanova. Uh, but he coached the 88 team. Now there is a myth that this team did not have talent to win. It's actually not true. 
You had David Robinson, Danny Manning, Mitch Richmond, Hersey Hawkins, Dan Marley. All those guys had long, and Stacey Ogman, long pro careers. Good, solid players. You get a Hall of Famer in Danny Manning. Not Danny Manning, David Robinson, as I meant to say. Other good players. Now, in hindsight from my research, John Tom- from multiple people, John Thompson made the mistake of not picking more guard shooters. This was actually discussed at the time in the newspapers at the time, and also actually Bill Simmons has a big article about it in his book, The Book of Basketball, that he could have picked some big-time shooters like Tim Hardaway, Mookie Blaylock, or Steve Kerr were all available to be picked, guys who had long NBA careers, to shoot the three. And FIBA had actually just instituted the three-point line in 84. So this was an opportunity to shoot the three. Now, John Thompson instead focused on picking defensive players to play like a full-court press type of a thing. So Hersey Hawkins was actually really the only three-point shooter on the team, which hurt the team when he got hurt. And so the U.S. team at this point couldn't really shoot from the outside. And teams in Europe over the years got more and more Focus on shooting the three. So the, the two other big teams that uh, would give the U.S. problems in 88 were the USSR, who were the perennial silver medalists, although they won gold in 1972, as I mentioned. They actually had future NBA player Arvita Sabonis on there. And then Yugoslavia. They had they'd won silver and bronze a lot. They actually won gold in the 80, in the 80 Olympics. They had future NBA players. Vladi Divac, Drazen Petrovic, and Tony Kukoc, who all eventually make the Hall of Fame. So those two teams are really loaded. Now, U.S. would go undefeated in their group play, while Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union were tie at 4-1, although Yugoslavia beat the USSR to win the tiebreaker. So the U.S. and the USSR actually played each other in the semis. This was actually the first time they met since 1972 in the Olympics, which makes sense. You had the U.S. boycott in 80, USSR boycott in 84, you must not have played in 76. And the USSR ended up beating the U.S. by six. And then they actually beat Yugoslavia in the gold medal game. The U.S. would beat Australia for bronze. And Luke Longley was actually on the Australian team. So the U.S. gets bronze. And so the myth comes out that this U.S. team didn't have enough talent to win. So we need the NBA players Really had John Thompson constructed a better team and had, again, Steve Kerr or Mookie Blaylock or Tim Harder on that team, I think they'd probably win, honestly. Uh, but by 1989, the FIBA president would allow um, all pro players to play in the Olympics. Now, the NBA was not happy about this. <laughs> you kind of see this now. like The NHL isn't huge on sending players to the Winter Olympics. NBA really wasn't that excited. But David Stern, the commissioner, said that uh, they'd be good soldiers and send players to the Olympics. Now, Michael Jordan was key. The NBA really wanted to convince Michael Jordan to play so he could get other players to play. And Jordan didn't want to do it. He'd already won a gold medal in 84. And he was wondering if he was going to be the only player. He didn't want to be him and a bunch of like college scrubs playing in the Olympics, he wanted other good players. Now, eventually, Magic and Larry Larry Bird would commit to playing the Olympics, which is huge. Actually, none of those two got 
the chance to play in the Olympics. And so that kind of got the ball rolling. MJ would eventually commit. He kind of got some backlash for saying he didn't want to play. And people actually questioned his patriotism. So he kind of got pressured into playing. And eventually, from as guys started to commit, uh, what is called the, the greatest basketball roster of all time uh, was put together. So again, you had Jordan, Bird, Magic, you had Scottie Pippen, you had Patrick Ewing, you had David Robinson, who's back for some revenge, then you had Carl Malone, you had Chris Mullen, Clyde Drexler, you had Charles Barkley and John Stockton, who were cut from the 84 team. Uh, and then you had coach Chuck Daly of the Bad Boy Pistons. All those guys are Hall of Famers. Uh, and then you had Christian Leitner because they the, the, the people wanted one more college player to be on the team to keep the whole amateur thing going. It actually came down to Christian Leitner and Shaquille O'Neal. Um, Shaquille was the number one pick in the draft, but Christian Leitner was a college player of the year, and Leitner had had a lot of success at Duke winning two titles. So that was the deciding factor. In hindsight, that's just ridiculous. Shaq should have been picked for the team. And can you imagine if Shaq was on the team? That team would have been even better. But a great team. Magic said being picked for the team was a lifesaver and gave him evidence he could have a normal life and live with his HIV, the HIV disease. Um, the last spot actually came down to Clyde Drexler versus Isaiah Thomas. And that's kind of the big controversy that they talk about in the, in the documentary is that um, Isaiah Thomas was good enough to be picked, but he was left off the team. Drexler was the last pick. Now, MJ denies that he requested that Isaiah Thomas off the team. He said that over and over and over again. Um, there is a supposed recording out there that said um, Jordan would only play if Isaiah Thomas didn't play. I think it's likely, in my opinion, that Jordan probably made that request. But most of the other players on the 92 team didn't like him. Um, Larry Bird didn't like him after, you know, uh, Isaiah Thomas had defended Dennis Rodman when Dennis Rodman said Larry Bird wouldn't be good, wouldn't be considered good if he was a black player. Magic Johnson didn't like him after Isaiah Thomas um, made some comments about Magic's HIV diagnosis. The walk-off against the Bulls in the 91 Conference Finals hurt his reputation. He was considered the leader of that group. Isaiah Thomas said in 1992 that he wouldn't blame MJ. So Isaiah was left off. I do think Michael probably had a little bit of saying that, but it was clear that no one wanted to play with Isaiah Thomas. Um, going into, and they don't talk about the Seedland documentary, which I get why, but going into the Olympics, the dream team would scrimmage against the college select team, which had Chris Weber, Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, Penny Hardaway, kind of talked about those two already, uh, Alan Houston, Jamal Mashburn, Eric Montrose, and Rodney Rogers. So a lot of those guys are just named for college players, and a lot of those guys would go on and have good, solid NBA careers. Now, so this team scrimmaged each other behind closed doors, and the college select team actually beat the dream team by eight. Um, and the media was not told this. Um, Coach K of Duke, who was an assistant on that team, said that Chuck Daly purposely threw the scrimmage. He didn't play Jordan much. 
and he didn't make any adjustments. And Coach K said Daly did that on purpose to show the pro team that they could lose to anybody. Like, if you can lose, if you can't beat a college team, how can you, you know, you could lose to anybody. But, uh, so the Dream Team infamously lost to a, a, a U.S. college all-star team. But they ended up having a rematch, like, the next day the day after that. Uh, the score is not available for that. Barkley said they beat him by 100. Chris Weber, who was on that college team, said they didn't even score a point. That seems kind of crazy they didn't score a point. But um, either way, um, Chuck Daly's point was made. And so, again, he threw that scrimmage to kind of keep the dream team focused. Now, what is interesting with the Dream Team is they had to actually qualify for the Olympics in the Tournament of Americas in Portland. So they weren't automatically in because they had lost the 92 Olympics, or the 88 Olympics. They won by an average of 50 points in six games. They beat Cuba, Canada, Panama, Argentina, Puerto Rico, and Venezuela. The big thing was the practices. Uh, initially, the players really went at each other because they're trying to prove who was the better player. You know, all those guys have egos, and you had, like, Carl Malone and Charles Barkley trying to prove they're the better power forward, Jordan trying to prove he's the best player. So they're very physical practices, and this culminated when they were in Monaco um, for practices, and they had a team scrimmage after a sluggish win. And uh, this is called the greatest game no one ever saw. Magic Johnson and other players would actually say that this was the best basketball they were part of. Now, the, the teams, different sources I've researched have said different things about how the teams were divvied up. You did have a, a team of Magic versus a team of Michael. And I think from what I've read, Michael Jordan's team had him, Scotty Malone, Ewing, and Bird on it. And Magic had him, Barkley, Robinson, Mullen, and Leitner. Magic got out to a Huge lead, started trash-talking Matt Jordan, and then Jordan led his team to a big comeback. And Jordan said, this is the 90s, not the 80s, and there's a new sheriff in town. And a lot of people feel like that was the time when Jordan kind of took over as the alpha dog in the NBA. But uh, that was a, a, the toughest game for the Dream Team was their scrimmage against each other. Um, they went to the Olympics. Charles Barkley actually would just roam the town, and he became a fan favorite. He was just walk around a bar to bar. Uh, most players didn't take their opponents seriously. MJ was actually the only one who watched film for weaknesses. And then during the Olympics, uh, Magic and, and, and Jordan would start every game, and then Chuck Daly would rotate the other three positions. So you'd have Pippen and Mullen rotating, Robinson and Ewing and Malone and Barkley would rotate. They destroyed Angola in game one. Charles Barkley famously said before the game, I don't know anything about Angola, but they're in trouble. And then they played Croatia. Now, Croatia had some of the remnants of the Yugoslavian team. So again, the Yugoslavian team was really good. A lot of silver and bronze medals in the 70s and 80s at the Olympics. But Yugoslavia had a civil war that broke up the country, and that created the Serbian national team and the Croatian national team, so Serbia and Croatia. Now, this breakup would actually kind of end that dominance. Um, you know, Croatia actually 
has really struggled and hasn't won a medal since 92. Serbia would win a medal in 96 and 2016, but um, would struggle after that. So Yugoslavia was a nice power. That Civil War broke that team up. And so 88 was the last Olympics with Yugoslavia. Croatia is kind of a remnant of Yugoslavia. Now, infamously, uh, Croatia had Tony Kukoc on it. And we've talked about Tony Kukoc before, but again, the Bulls had drafted Tony Kukoc in 1990. The Bulls had set some money aside to try to sign Kukoc. Jerry Krause felt like Tony Kukoc was the future for the Bulls and was really trying to publicly woo him to the Bulls. And he didn't come right away in 1990, and that's why Scottie Pippen signed his infamous long-year contract, but, you know, which is his choice, even though his agents told him not to do that. So at this time, though, Scottie and Mike were really mad at Jerry Krause for publicly courting Tony Kukoc instead of paying them more money. And so they decided to destroy Tony Kukoc in that game to get back at Jerry Krause, and they both guarded him really tightly, and Tony Kukoc was surprised. His goal was he knew that they were going to lose to the U.S. His goal was just to get through the game, get second in their division, and then play the U.S. down the road. But he did not was surprised by how physical that game was, and he didn't know for 20 years that Jordan and Pippen purposely came at, at him to get back at Jerry Krause. So, U.S. dominated the group stage, beat Angola by 70, Croatia by 33, Germany by 50, Brazil by 44, Spain by 41. They go to the quarters and they beat Puerto Rico by 40, Lithuania in the semis by 50. Then they played Croatia uh, in the gold medal game. Croatia led by two in the first half, and then the U.S. though would go on to win by 42. So, I mean, there's not much talk about the Olympics other than they dominated. They won by an average of 44 points. Many of their opponents were more focused on taking pictures. Uh, This was the second largest margin of victory. A 56 U.S. team won by 53 points. They were the first team in Olympic history, and I still think the only one to score 100 points in every game. Barkley was the leading scorer. Uh, Considered the greatest team of all time. 11 Hall of Famers. Three Hall of Fame coaches, the team's in the Hall of Fame. Christian Leitner is the only player not individually in the Hall of Fame. That global interest in basketball skyrocketed the Dream Team. Um, that Dream Team is considered a big reason why a lot of foreign players started coming to the NBA. And they'd slowly get better. Uh, the U.S. would win gold in 96 and 2000, but it would never be anything like the blowouts in 92. The U.S. would then get bronze in 04, but then they've won in 8, 12, 16, and 20. So they still dominate Olympic play, and they've still only lost six games in Olympic play. So still great, but the um, the other teams are just so good across the globe now that you're never going to have a 92 team again that just dominates everybody. Kind of some random facts. Uh, MJ would play 36 holes of golf a day. While he was in the Olympics, uh, they stayed at a hotel and not the Olympic Village, and no one was allowed within two blocks of their hotel. Detlef Schrempf played for Germany. He was the only other NBA player I haven't mentioned yet for the foreign teams. Barkley was the only member of the team to lead the tournament in any category. That just shows, it goes to show you how good they were and how spread out everything was. 
Uh, MJ, Ewing, and Mullen were on the 84 Olympic team, and they're still the only players to win Olympic gold as amateurs and pros. And Chuck Daly infamously never called a timeout. And he said, what would have been the point of calling a timeout? <laughs> so, yeah, he famously never called a timeout um, during the Olympics. So, Jordan and the Bulls win in 92, go back to back. And then Jordan and Pippen go on and win a, a gold medal and help skyrocket the popularity of the NBA. I think this is a good time now to have my player profile for this episode. And I think it's obvious that Tony Kukoc should be this player. Uh, again, because he fits right into the fact that um, this Bulls team did not like him the first three-peat because Jerry Krause was courting him, but also because he played Jordan in the Olympics, but then was an integral part of the second three-peat. Now, Tony Kukoc was a direct reason why the Dream Team happened because of the success of his Yugoslavian team and other European teams beating the U.S. amateurs in the Olympics and um, other tournaments. Now, he started playing in split Croatia. Again, it was Yugoslavia. And he was on a beach, and a coach walked up to him and saw he's almost seven feet tall and convinced him to play basketball instead of soccer. He started playing for his hometown club at 17. He won three straight EuroLeague titles. He was a four-time MVP, so a great player. Um, he moved to an Italian team and won the Italian League in 92 and Italian Cup in 93. Um, he averaged about 20 points a game in the Italian League and about six rebounds and five assists. I couldn't find any stats on him for his hometown Croatian team. Again, he started playing for the Yugoslavian national team in 87. Got a silver in the Olympics was MVP of the 1990 FIBA World Championship. As I mentioned, he started on Croatia in 1992, and they won silver. They also won bronze at the FIBA Championship in 94. Now, again, that first game, he only scored four points where they played the U.S., but in the gold medal game, he had a good game, 16 points, five rebounds, nine assists, and MJ said he gained his respect after that game. Again, Jerry Krause scouted him. As I mentioned already, they drafted him in the second round of the 1990 draft. At the time, a lot of people considered European soft players and weren't tough, which I just find ironic because all these European players came from war zones. <laughs> like Tony Kukoc grew up in the middle of a civil war. He's a tough guy. Um, Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf flew out to watch him after they drafted him in 90, and they had to be, actually be evacuated the next day because of the war. As I mentioned, the Bulls tried to sign him immediately, but he held off for a couple years. A lot of it was because he could make better money in Europe. He wanted to be close to his family during war. Um, he also didn't want to waste some of his prime years on the bench, which he thought would happen. Now, the Bulls' offer was $2.6 million a year for six years. The Italian team gave him $4.25 million a year, so almost $2 million more a year to stay with them, and plus they paid his taxes. Pippen's deal was like uh, $2.3 million a year, the, the deal that he signed because Kukos didn't come. Um, he still followed the Bulls, though. And the night of his wedding, he stopped his party at 3 a.m. so he could watch the 93 NBA Finals between the Bulls and the Suns. He finally signed with the Bulls after the 93 season. He showed up, and it was MJ's retirement press conference, which he had no clue that MJ was going to retire. He signed a seven-year contract, seven or eight-year, depending upon the source, 
for $17 million with an opt-out after one year. And then Kukoc opted out and got six years with $4 million a year. Now, that opt-out was put in place so the Bulls could skirt the salary cap rules. And so they essentially gave him that contract so Kukoc could opt out after the first year and the Bulls could give him a bigger contract. And they, and they ended, up, ended up able to get around that. Can't do that anymore. Pippen embraced Kukoc right away. So Pippen had no problem with Kukoc when he became his teammate. His first season was 93-94, averaged 24 minutes, only eight starts in 75 games, but 11 points, four rebounds, three and a half assists. He was a seven-point, seven-foot point guard. Uh, a couple big moments for him. In 94, Reggie Miller hit a shot and bowed to the crowd to put Indiana, Indiana ahead with two seconds left. Then Tony hits the game winner <laughs> right after that. Uh, he had that famous buzzer beater in the 1994 Eastern Conference semis against the Knicks. He was he started 55 games the next year, but then he became the sixth man when Jordan came back. And as I mentioned earlier, he was the sixth man of the year in, in 1996. He was a huge part of the second three-peat. In the 1997 finals in Game 6, um, he had nine points and four rebounds. The 98 Eastern Conference Finals Game 7 against the Pacers. He had 21 points and 4 rebounds. Jordan was the only one with more points. 1998 Finals Game 5, he had 30 points and 6 rebounds. And this was when the Jordan missed the game winner, which they ended up having to go to Game 6. John Paxton, who was an assistant with the Bulls, told Phil, you need to give the ball to Kukoc. He's on fire. Jackson didn't and later said he should have given it to Kukoc. He would lead the Bulls in 98-99, the year after Jordan retired. Led them in scoring, rebounding, and assist. He'd end up playing for Philly, for Atlanta, and Milwaukee. Played four years in Milwaukee. He retired after the 2006 season. Averaged 12 points a game, four rebounds a game, almost four assists, one steal a game. In Chicago, 14 points, five rebounds, four assists. Good, solid player, and he's in the Hall of Fame, mostly because of his career internationally before the NBA. But good player, good player. Um, I don't, he didn't become the superstar that Jerry Krause wanted, but he became a good, solid player. I think one of my favorite anecdotes about him is that Steve Kerr noticed that, I think one of the first times he had a pregame meal is that four hours before game time, Tony Kukoc ordered a salad, an appetizer, pasta, chicken, a glass of red wine, dessert, and an espresso. And Steve Kerr was like, how are you going to eat that much? It's like a 4,000-calorie meal and play. And Tony told Steve, in Europe, we eat a lot, drink a little wine, have espresso, go back to the hotel, take a big crap, and then we go play. <laughs> so, um, Tony Kukoc, good player, probably underrated. Uh... But a big reason why the Bulls won their, their last, their, their second three-peat. But again, also a big reason why they're professional players in the NBA now. All right, so another part of the last dance they touch upon is that Jordan became this huge endorsement moneymaker, uh, which, which was pretty big. And they talk about how... Uh, his agent, David Falk, really wanted him to be like a tennis player. At the time, a lot of tennis players got really good individual endorsements. And he tried to do that with Jordan. 
And so Jordan ended up being one of the most well-known and, and highly compensated endorsers of all time. Um, when he graduated North Carolina, he signed a five-year deal worth 500000 a year with Nike, which was crazy high for a rookie. Um, James Worthy, Worthy and Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Dr. J, all the stars at the time got no more than 150 a year. Now, Nike did that because they recognized the value of having a star athlete as their face, and they needed it because they had their first quarterly loss in 1984. Their sales had plateaued, and that was even with Carl Lewis winning four gold in the Olympics. Again, Nike was a really a track shoe at the time. So they invested in Jordan. Now, they had a couple clauses in that contract. It was a five-year deal, and they said that Jordan had to be rookie of the year, become an all-star, or average 20 points a game during those first three years. Otherwise, his final two years would be void. Now, his agent agreed to that, but he put a clause in there that also said that if Jordan sold $4 million worth of shoes, he would get to keep that deal his last two years, plus he'd get 25%. Royalty, which ended up being a phenomenal deal because, again, in year four, Nike hoped to make $3 million off the Air Jordan line. They made $126 million in year one. So became a just a boon for Nike. And part of that was because um, the, the shoes were red, black, and white, which went against Nike's regulations of shoes being mostly, or the NBA's rules of the shoes being mostly white. So Jordan got fined 5000 a game, which was great publicity, which Nike paid. Now, there is a source out there that said that's just apocryphal and that didn't happen. But Nike did put out an ad that said, on September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. So this got huge publicity. Air Jordan skyrocketed in 2012, which is 10 years after Jordan's final retirement. They still accounted for 58% of all basketball shoes in the U.S. So, great deal. Um, MJ actually had say in the design of the shoe, which was unique. Most players didn't have that. Um, Jordan's agent, David Falk, became a kind of a premier agent. He became an influencer of teams, trades, and draft picks. Um, probably the most powerful agent. Um, he became the, probably the most powerful agent in the game. But some other endorsement deals for Jordan. He signed his first endorsement deal actually with Chevrolet in 84. Um, he signed on with Wheaties in 1988. MJ's appeared on the, on the box 18 times. No one has more. He started with Haynes in 89. He initially repped Coca-Cola, but switched to Gatorade in 91. And Pepsi actually bought Gatorade. But Gatorade paid him $13 million over 10 years. He added Upper Deck and McDonald's in 92 and 93. Um, so what's, what's crazy about how much money Jordan still makes. So in 2019, Jordan made $130 million through his Nike shoe deal. Just Nike. No other endorsements. LeBron James... 32 million. So Jordan is making $100 million more per year than LeBron James right now, even though LeBron James is winning championships and Jordan's been retired for almost 20 years. Jordan made $94 million in 13 seasons, 
And actually, 63 of that came in his last two years. So $94 million career earnings in the NBA. He has made roughly $1.7 billion in endorsements. That's billion with a B. So that's why he can why he bought the Charlotte Hornets, which he owns right now. So big time endorser. So I'm I'm gonna close this podcast. Just a quick update of the 1998 season. So after the All Star break, the Bulls really take off. Um, they go on a 15 to two run. Uh, they end up beating Indiana twice, which was huge. And they went from a half game back at the All-Star break to three and a half games up. And they would not relinquish this lead over the rest of the season. Uh, so they're really firing on all cylinders with Scotty coming back. At this point in time, on March 17th, the top eight seeds in the East are the Bulls, Pacers, Heat, Hornets, Hawks, Knicks, Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, I don't know why I said their full name. And then the Nets and the Bullets. Excuse me, we're uh, we're tied. So those are your your top eight in the East at the time. And in the West, you have Seattle with forty nine, Utah with forty eight, L A with forty five, Spurs and Phoenix with forty four, and then Portland, Houston, and Miami. So a lot of the drama is out of the way for the regular season for this ninety eight Bulls team at this time, um, and that actually continue to go on. And really, really kill it the rest of the regular season. But they're now in prime position to get to the playoffs, have the number one seed, have home corner advantage, and then try to go on their quest to repeat a second three-peat. And I think it's just really incredible when you think about it. They started out 8-7 and seven with Scottie Pippen not playing, not playing well at all. And we're really looking back at their other teams, like 92, 93, 95, 6 and 7, excuse me. They started off really hot. 98 was... Was a uh, was a rough start, but they've righted the ship and look like the team to beat in the NBA. So that's about where we will end this podcast. So a lot of stuff, probably not as long as I thought it was. It's probably going to be just under two hours. But we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about obviously the '98 All Star Game and, and Kobe and Jordan. We talked about the '92 Bulls and their playoff run, which was a lot harder than what the Last Dance talked about. And then we talked about the 92 Olympics, the importance of that, and Tony Kukoc and why he is criminally underrated on this Bulls team. Talked about Jordan's endorsements. I don't know how you can, what you do with $1.7 billion. Oh, I just said it, I guess, earlier. He bought the Charlotte Hornets. Um, but still, if I had $1.7 billion, I don't know what I'd do. I guess I'd try to buy a sports team. And then we ended talking about this update with the Chicago Bulls. So I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Doc Tell Me More as we're continuing going through the last dance. Again, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Doc Tell Me More. And thank you for listening. And until next time, we will um, talk again, meet again uh, for the next episode of The Last Dance.